Let's begin by praying together the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lord God, hallowed be Your name. Your name is great above all names. There is no God but You. You alone are the Creator and Sustainer of all things. Even when we pay no heed to You, Lord, You are upholding us. Even, Lord, when we curse You, You're the one who gave us the breath to do it. And so, Lord, we honor You this morning as the great and awesome God, the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. And we praise You because not only have You created us, but that You've come to save us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we are rebellious people, and yet in Jesus You came to rescue us from our sins. So we praise You this morning for our salvation. We praise You for our lives. We praise You, God, because You are highly exalted and hallowed is Your name. Lord, we also pray that Your kingdom would come, that Your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that Your kingdom and Your purposes would continue to prevail in this world. Lord, we pray for our missionaries of the week, uh, the Beach Hills, who serve here in Massachusetts with Child Evangelism Fellowship. Lord, may Your kingdom come through them as they seek to reach out to children those who are overlooked in our society. Lord, may they minister the gospel to young children. Bless them and bless their efforts. Lord, I pray that Your kingdom would come through South Shore Baptist Church this morning. We pray that Your kingdom would come through other churches on the South Shore that are preaching the gospel of Jesus. We pray for First Baptist Weymouth and we pray for um, North River Community Church and First Baptist Church of Duxbury and and Lord, uh, Calvary Chapel in Rockland. And Lord, so many other churches we could mention. We just pray that they would be conduits through which Your kingdom is coming into this world. Lord, we pray your, your kingdom would come around the world. May Your kingdom come in Iraq. May Your kingdom come in Afghanistan. Lord, reach out to Japan. Lord, don't forget Iceland. Lord, remember Macedonia. God, all these nations in the world filled with people. God, may Your church be established in each of these nations. Lord, take the Gospel especially to those who've never heard, to those who don't have a Bible in their mother tongue. God, we pray for the advancement of Your kingdom in all these areas. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. I pray for each person here that You would sustain them, provide for them, whether it's a financial need, whether they're sick and they just need to be healed. Lord, I pray that You bring healing to bodies this morning. Lord, I pray for, for those who are down and uh, brokenhearted that You would lift them up. God, we pray that You would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We confess we are a sinful people. Even when we're in a worship service, Lord, our minds wander to things that are ungodly. Lord, we are just so incorrigibly sinful. So we need You through the blood of Jesus to forgive us our sins this morning. And Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Enable us to walk in Your ways this week. We want to live holy lives. And so, Lord, give us radar to pick up on Satan's attacks. Help us to know when he's tempting us. Help us to realize when the old ways, the old sinful ways are creeping in. And, Lord, help us to stand against them. God, lead us not into temptation. And through all this, God, may you be glorified. And to your name be the glory and the power forever. Amen. We invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church if they'd like to go. And would the rest of you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 39. Luke 1, 39. 
If you are using a pew Bible and you don't know where the book of Luke is, it's on page 1013. Page 1013. The Gospel of Luke. We're studying chapter 1. Continuing our study through Luke. Uh, you'll notice also, uh, perhaps, in your bulletin, you'll see this insert. These are not the sermon notes. This is actually the first uh, Bible study in our Luke group series. Those of you who are new, uh, one of the things we're doing this fall is we have a number of small group Bible studies that meet all over the South Shore, which you're welcome to attend. And what a lot of them are doing this fall is they are studying Luke ahead of the sermon. So they're going to be studying this week what I'm preaching on next week. So the idea is the people of the church are gathering together, studying the Bible, studying God's Word, and then coming to church and, and seeing you know, where I go wrong and, and go awry and, and when I preach. So that's sort of the idea behind it. So take one of these Luke groups, look at it. Uh, maybe you're thinking about, maybe I want to join a Luke group, maybe I don't. You know, try it out this week. Look at it, go through the study, and maybe you'll say, yeah, this is something I'd like to be a part of. Or maybe it's just something you want to do on your own, individually, as part of your own study of Scripture. So that's, that's our intention with these Luke groups. As we study through Luke, up here in the, from the front, we want you to be studying it in your homes as well. So Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 39 to 56 today. So have you ever uh, had a real-life brush with a, a, a celebrity? I mean, besides me, of course. I mean, you know. <laughs> That was a joke. Um, yeah, my wife did once. She, uh, she was in a, a shopping mall and was waiting in line to pay for something, and uh, there's some other lady in line with her. And she heard this, this ruckus coming down the aisle. And it was this person who was just loud and obnoxious. I mean, totally just out of control person. You know, that, the person had a kid with them, and the person was chewing out their kid, and she could hear every word of the conversation. It was just totally embarrassing, uncomfortable moment. She's like, you know, who in the world is this person? And, and, and as they came down the aisle, you know, my wife looked and the person was just passing and the person was like in, you know, just scuzzy clothes and ripped up jeans and, you know, scraggly hair. You know, my wife is like, oh. she looks at the lady next to her in line and they kind of look at each other like, you know, who is that? And my wife said, you know, the thought goes through her mind, what is that kind of person, you know, doing out in public, you know, walking through the mall? I mean, I appreciate her honesty. We have those thoughts. Um, well, immediately after that comes this gaggle of teenage girls. And they're going, did you see so-and-so? Did you see so-and-so? Did you see so-and-so? was just here. Where's so-and-so? And, and I'm not going to tell you the name of the person, but so-and-so was the name of a famous musician. If I were to tell you the name of this musician, you would all go, oh, yeah, I've heard of that person. And, and my wife, when she heard that, went, that was, you know, I see it now. That was that famous musician. And the interesting thing my wife said is, suddenly her perception changed, and she started going, you know, wow, I just saw so-and-so. You know, you know like, well, maybe she didn't go, oh, but you know, you know what I'm saying. She was like, I, I can't believe it. That, that's, you know, that was that person. And she, we were talking about it afterwards. We're like, isn't that funny? When you think somebody is just kind of a dirtbag, you, you, you kind of go, ugh. But the second you think that they're famous, or, or whatever, then it's, ooh, even though it's, the same guy. The same guy. And, you know, we so naturally gravitate toward, I so naturally gravitate toward the powerful and the famous and the successful. Our culture venerates the wealthy and the beautiful and the educated. Some of you have wealth. Some of you out there, and you know what it's like. You don't like people to know it. Because once they know it, then they start going, hmm. 
And they just look at you different. It's like, oh, another relationship ruined. You know? Because it just, that's how our society works. You know, people, we, we venerate, we hold these things up. Those are the people who have major status in our society. Whereas people who are lowly and broken and nobodies, and of course we, we don't pay attention to them. And this is nothing new. Roman uh, society back in the time of the New Testament was the same way. In fact, the entire uh, structure of Roman society was, was a society based upon patronage. And, and so everybody had a patron, whether it was your landowner or a senator or somebody, and, and the people underneath a certain patron would sort of owe honor and allegiance to the patron. So, so the whole society was this big structure of patronage all the way up to the Roman emperor who was you know, considered a deity. And he was the ultimate father of Rome. He was the ultimate patronage, and everyone, you know, owed honor to him. And so you had this whole society just built upon honoring the person uh, above you who had more power, or more influence, or more wealth, or more armies, or whatever uh, the case may be. But in God's kingdom, the whole thing is flipped upside down. God takes the world's value system, the world's metric, and, and just turns it inside out, inverts it. It's totally the opposite in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, He exalts the humble and He humbles the exalted. God loves to take our world's way of doing things and our our sinful world's way of viewing things and just flip it on its head. That's what God does. You know, last two Sundays we've been studying the nature of God's kingdom in the Gospel of Luke. And in the last two Sundays, if you've been here, we've been noticing that God's kingdom is an unstoppable kingdom. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will prevent it. God's kingdom plans are moving forward. Well, this Sunday we're looking at sort of another dimension of God's kingdom, and that is kind of this inverted nature that God takes the world's value system and flips them on its head to show that He alone is God, to show that He alone saves And so that's what the the text is about today. So I'd like you to look at our uh, story of the Gospel of Luke. Look at verse 39. And I want you just to notice this theme of inversion. Verse 39 says, At that time, Luke chapter 1, verse 39, At that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Now, if, if you were here the last two Sundays, you know this is kind of a continuing saga. If this is your first Sunday here, you haven't been reading through Luke, let me just give you the quick up to speed. Uh, two Sundays ago, we looked at uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And Elizabeth was, or rather, Zechariah is visited by the angel Gabriel and told that his wife Elizabeth, who was old and was childless, that she was going to have a baby. And it was going to be John the Baptist. Then last Sunday, the vis- angel visits Mary, who's a, most likely a 12-year-old peasant girl, and tells her that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. And as one of the confirming signs that Mary is going to give birth to the Messiah, the angel tells her, well, look at verse 36. The angel says to Mary, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. So that's why, in verse 39, Mary gets up, takes off about 70, probably about 70 plus or minus miles from Nazareth down to the hill country of Judea. And she goes in the home of Zechariah and she greets Elizabeth because she wants to see this. It's like, what? It, it, you know, Elizabeth's even pregnant? Well, i got to see that. You know, so she gets on her donkey or whatever and cruises down there probably. It's pretty a remarkable thing for a 12-year-old to leave uh, her father's household in those days. It would have been a, a real uh, bold gesture. Because, you know, in those days of patriarchal culture, a girl was kept in the home, safe, and then at the right age, around 12, married off. 
So this would have been sort of a daring move for her to go on her own down there to the hill country of Judea. But she wants to see this sign. Verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. That was some kind of kick, huh? You know? <laughs> I remember my wife was pregnant. You know, that's one of the fun things is sort of watching the baby kick. You know, you kept, even with her stomach and you see like a little hand come out or a foot or something. And, you know, my wife would be standing there and suddenly be like, oh, you know, like what? You know, kicked in the bladder or, you know, whatever it is. And so the baby's in there kicking and doing a thing. This is one of those kicks. He said, this is more like, like a Holy Spirit, you know, Pentecostal prophet kick, right? And this baby, wham. And, and so in a sense, it's kind of interesting, in a sense, John the Baptist is already fulfilling his role as, as the proclaimer of the Messiah. He's already the forerunner going ahead of the Messiah. You know, the baby Jesus in the womb of Mary comes in and baby John the Baptist is like, Mom, there's the Messiah! <laughs> you know, <laughs> whoa! And, and, and then suddenly, you know, she's filled up with the Holy Spirit. And, and so in a sense, the two mothers represent the children. It's, it's kind of like a foreshadowing of later on in the Gospel of Luke. And, and so the Messiah is there, and, and she, he's represented by the mother, Mary. And then uh, John the Baptist is there, and, and he's represented by Elizabeth. So Elizabeth begins to prophesy, which is what John is going to do. So you kind of see all this cool literary foreshadowing stuff. You know, Luke was a wonderful uh, author. He just wove this together so beautifully. So anyway, she starts to prophesy. And, and what I want you to notice in her prophecy in verses 42 to 45 is two things. First of all, it's a confirmation that what God said to Mary is going to come true. That's the first thing. And that, that ties into our point from the last two weeks. God's kingdom doesn't fail. If God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And it doesn't matter if you're an old woman who's never had children or you're a 12-year-old girl who's never been with a man. If God says you're going to have a baby, you're going to have a baby. If God says his kingdom is going to come, his kingdom is going to come. So that's the first part of what Mary, uh, Elizabeth's saying. She's confirming the words of the angel. But I want you to notice a second theme here, and this is the other theme that I talked about at the beginning. The, inv- excuse me, the inverted nature of God's kingdom. That the lowly are exalted and the exalted are brought low. And I think it's even implied here in this passage. Because what's interesting in this passage is that it's Elizabeth greeting Mary and blessing Mary. Whereas typically, it would have been the other way around. You know, in ancient culture, like most cultures, the young honor the old. I mean, that's how it is. I mean, except America, where, you know, the young diss the old, and that's just kind of cool or whatever. But, you know, in most of society, the young honor the old. And so typically, it would have been the young person coming into the old person's presence and, you know, rising in the presence of the aged and giving due respect to her older relative. But already we see the things being flipped. And Elizabeth is honoring Mary and saying, Oh, blessed are you among women. Why should the mother of my Lord be here? I'm not worthy to kind of be in your presence. And so there's a hint here already that God is doing something completely backward, at least from our perspective. From our perspective. Now, what is implicit in those verses is made explicit in the following verses. If you look at verses 46 to 55, this is uh, Mary's song. So this is so amazing that Mary just bursts out into song. 
she, she can't contain it. She, I don't know if she sang it right then or if she you know, wrote it later, but who knows. But you know, we have this song here that Mary wrote. And this is called the Magnificant. It's kind of a famous part, part of Scripture. And the name Magnificant comes from verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies or magnifies the Lord. So it's the Magnificent. It's just a psalm of praise. It's praising God for who He is. Just like we are singing psalms of praise up here this morning, Mary kicks into her own psalm of praise. She writes her own psalm. And what I want you to notice is that sort of the through line of this psalm is the fact that God exalts the humble and He humbles the exalted. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Magnificent and you just follow along and I want you to track that theme sort of mentally as I'm reading it, okay? All right, so here we go, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? For He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He's lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as He said to our fathers. Now, in the Magnificat, we have kind of two movements, thematically speaking. The first movement is where Mary kind of focuses on herself. She reflects upon her own story. And we see that God exalts the humble and humbles the exalted in the instance of Mary. So the first section of the Magnificat of the two halves is, is verses 48 and 49. Let's look at it again. Mary says, For he's been, humble, he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She's talking about herself. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. So, first of all, Mary looks at her own situation and she's thinking, I can't believe this has been done, done for me. I, I think, unfortunately, today, Mary is often overblown. She's overinflated. You know, she's called the Queen of Heaven and the Mother of the Church. And, you know, we think she's immaculately conceived. I mean, none of that stuff's in the Bible. That's totally, you know, not biblical teaching. All that's kind of man made ideas. The biblical picture of Mary is actually the very opposite. Not some superwoman, but a nobody. Mary's a nobody. Because she's just a 12-year-old peasant girl. I mean, that's the whole point. That's what's so amazing about this is she's the last person in the world you would think would be the mother of the Messiah. But that is where God's favor finds its way here in the opening story of Luke. To this nobody peasant girl from a no-place town in Nazareth. And Mary is blessed by God to be the mother of of the Messiah. You know, it's amazing. We had a couple of missionaries in our church uh, many years ago. They're actually both uh, deceased now. They've gone to be with the Lord. Their names are Millie and Priscilla. Those of you who uh, you know, go back in our church's history a bit, you know Millie and Priscilla. I mean, these women were amazing. They were the first missionaries sent out from our church. They went and spent many decades in the, Philist, uh, the Philistines, the Philippines. Uh, no offense to Filipinos here. Uh, uh, they went to the Philippines. They spent many uh, years there. And, you know, wonderful women, even when they came back from the mission field, I mean, they're just ministering everywhere. People are, you know, they open up Bible studies in their neighborhood. Of just amazing women. And, and you, I had the privilege of knowing them near the end of their life. And even in, near the end of their days, I mean, these women are just like a life force. They just walk into a room and at center of attention. There's just so much joy and light coming out of them. But, you know, the funny thing is, uh, you know, when, when you're that kind of person, you, you don't see yourself that way. Because that's the whole point, is that God has to work through you. And, and they wrote a book of their experience. 
And the title of the book I always love. It's called the book's entitled Me, a Missionary? Question mark. I love that. Like me, a missionary? You know, it seems the most ridiculous thing in the world from their perspective. And I think that if Mary were to write a book, she could have entitled it Me, the Mother of the Messiah. <laughs> That's the whole point is that it's, it's ridiculous. There's, there's nothing about Mary at all that would predispose her to be the mother of the Messiah. But God, in His grace, reaches down to the lowly. And the Messiah is not born in the imperial palace in Rome, nor is He born in the Herodian palace in Jerusalem. He's born in Nazareth. He's conceived in Nazareth and born in Bethlehem. I mean, it's kind of nobody places to a nobody 12-year-old peasant girl. But not only that... Mary then looks to see that it's not just her. This is the way God works. And so in verses 50 to 55, we move to the second half of the Magnificat. And it's kind of like the camera angle pans backward. And we move from Mary's specific situation to the general situation in Israel. And we see, look, and even beyond, to the whole world, this is how God works. Mary's situation is not the exception, it's the rule. This is how God operates in His kingdom. He loves to exalt the humble and humble the exalted. So it says in verse 50, His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. This is how God works. And sure enough, this is a major theme running throughout the Gospel of Luke. And some of you have read Luke. You know, I asked you to read the Gospel of Luke as sort of a homework assignment. Some of you have done that. And maybe you just picked up on this theme. It's major theme in Luke. The, the exaltation of the humble and the, the humbling of the exalted. You, you know, who are, who are the people in the Gospel of Luke who are in the spotlight of God's mercy and favor? Who are they? They're the lepers, the hookers, the tax collectors, you know, the low lives. They're the sick people, the dead people. You know, these are the people like Jesus is just drawn to them. And he goes to all these people who are marginalized in society, sometimes for a good reason, but he goes to those people. And, and that's to whom his, his mercy is extending. And conversely, who gets, who gets uh, you know, the black spot on them in the Gospel of Luke? Who, who comes off poorly? It's the rich who are indifferent to the poor, the powerful who are indifferent to the weak, the religious elite who use their religious authority to, to bolster themselves and to oppress those whom they should be leading and caring for. And so in those people who are sort of big in the world's eyes, man, they just get thrown down in the Gospel of Luke. And those who are humble and, and care for the needy and, and who are themselves needy, those are the ones whom God's favor just seems to be attracted to. And it makes me ask myself, you know, how do I view the world? Do I view the world through the value system and the lens and the metric of the world? Do I look at the world and sort of hold up in my mind those who are, are rich and powerful and famous, successful and educated and beautiful? Are those the people? And do I ignore the lowly? Or have I learned to begin looking at the world through God's kingdom perspective? Um, you know, I was thinking, when I was thinking about how we do this as a church and how we view people, I was reminded of, of a book of the Bible. It was um, that sort of soft, cuddly, easygoing book, uh, the book of uh, James, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, in fact, if you could put a bookmark here in Luke and turn to the book of James in the New Testament, James is found on uh, page 
1196, 1196, book of James, chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, 1196. James was the half-brother of Jesus. We're told from church history and tradition. Mary had other children after Jesus, and James is one of them. We see in uh, James chapter 2, verse 1, here's James in his typical beat-around-the-bush, soft-sell kind of way. He says in James chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Like, what are you trying to say, James? I mean, stop mincing words. Yeah, I call James God's two-by-four. Whenever you need a two-by-four, just read James. Wham, you'll get it. Verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? You know, generally speaking, guys, it's, it's the rich who are opposing the, the kingdom, generally speaking, and it's the poor who are being drawn to it. And so you guys have it all wrong. And, you know, I, I was really convicted by that. I was thinking, all right, if I'm sitting in a pew in church on Sunday, and two people sit in the pew in front of me, you know, two new people in church, one guy sits at one end, one guy sits in the other, and the first guy is, you know, all bedraggled and needs a shave and needs a shower, and, you know, he's kind of by himself, and he sort of looks weird, and, you know, just kind of, you know, sending out sort of weirdness vibes, and you're kind of, you know, looking at him, and then the other guy sits in the pew, and it's Kurt Schilling. Okay. <laughs> He's a Christian. Maybe he decided to come worship here, you know, because he was just, you know, totally at a loss and somehow ended up here. So he's, you know, comes and, and sits down here. You know, during the handshake time, which end of the pew are you going to go for? I mean, of course, we're going to go to Kurt Schilling. We're going to be like, oh, my gosh, it's Kurt Schilling. It's Kurt Schilling, you know. <laughs> you know, will you autograph my bulletin? You know, whatever. I mean, we're going to be going bananas. If, if I'm downstairs during the fellowship time after the service having coffee, and I'm standing there with my uh, circle of friends, and I see two people standing there with their cups of coffee, kind of, you know, doing the, you know, and obviously just I'm alone, I don't know anybody here. And, and if, I, if I feel led to reach out to them and invite them in, who am I going to reach out to? You know, Mr. Nobody or Mr. Kurt Shelley? Of course, I'm going to be like, Dude, that's Kurt Shelley, let's get him over here. You know? And that's just our human nature. And, and James and Luke and, and the whole train of the Bible is saying, no, 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 maybe God is doing his work in another way. And this isn't anything against Kurt Schilling. It's, it's against me. That's who I'm talking about, is our hearts in this. How do we value things in the church? How do we um, uh, value ministries in the church? Isn't it just, frankly, more glamorous to lead worship and to sing and to be in the front with a microphone and an instrument than it is to be in a sound booth, you know, controlling the volume. You know, it's always easy to find singers. It's hard to find people in the sound booth because you know, after the service, everyone comes up to the singers and the musician says, great job. And they do a great job. We have an awesome praise team. But how many people go up to the sound guy and say, I want to thank you for enabling me to hear the word of God clearly this morning. And, and by the way, can I help? You know, this just doesn't happen. Everyone, you know, everyone wants to be in front of a Sunday school class teaching adults or in front of a, a church preaching. That's why I'm preaching to myself here. But... How likely are we to go down to the nursery and say, 
you guys need a hand? Because I hear that baby screaming, and I really want to help you by holding that screaming baby. You know, who wants to be in a Sunday school class with a bunch of little kids week after week? Because, you know, little kids are nobodies. Little kids have no influence. But, boy, they're, they're precious in the kingdom of God. And you see Jesus often gravitating toward children to bless them and to minister to them. And why am I so prone to want to be in front of adults but don't want to be in a little classroom with little kids? You know, where's my heart at? And when we share the gospel, how do we view those with whom we share the gospel? Do I reach out toward those who are you know, needy or do I gravitate toward the more important people? And let's just face it, it's far more glamorous to think of sharing the gospel with Harrison Ford than it is to think of sharing the gospel with Harry at the nursing home or Helen at, at the women's shelter. That's just not glamorous, and I don't gravitate that way. And, and so we need to, I need to constantly have my vision inverted by God's Word and by God's Holy Spirit and see things from His perspective. You know, there's this uh, experiment that was done once. Maybe you heard about it. It's kind of a Psych 101 basic staple. And, and in this experiment, uh, some guy made some glasses that invert your vision. You know, they did something with the lenses so that when you look through these glasses, you see the world upside down. And what he did is he had you know, someone wear the glasses for a long time so that you know, the guy's walking around and everything's flipped. But I guess something, according to the experiment, as, as I heard it, something interesting happens in, in terms of perception so that if you wear the glasses long enough, eventually your brain kind of adapts and re-inverts the image, at least from your perspective, so that you're somehow able to function with things upside down. And I thought, you know, what a picture that is uh, spiritually of, of what God does in our hearts. He shows us how he views the world, and the first time we look at it, we're like, oh, I can't, I can't function. This is upside down. This isn't how the world works. How am I going to get around this way? But if I continue to allow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to be the lens through which I view the world, and I keep that in front of me, eventually it starts to make sense. And things will start to view things from God's perspective. And I'll realize that actually it was upside down in the first place and God has shown me the right way up. You know, what's up, what's down? It depends, I guess, on, on whose system you're using. And so I, I just pray that God will help me to continue to view the world the way He views it and that I might be drawn toward those who are at the bottom and look for God's kingdom happening there. God's kingdom is exploding around the world. It's exploding. It's, it's running like wildfire around the world. But you know where it's happening? You know, you know where the revivals and the explosions are taking place? It's among the poor in the developing nations. It's India. It's the poor in the back countries of China. It's sub-Saharan Africa. That's where it's just like a virus. And it's here in America where, you know, we're educated and sophisticated. And, you know, they we're like, well, I don't need that. And, but God's kingdom has always been for the poor. And why is that? Why is God's kingdom for the poor? Is it that rich people are bad and poor people are good? No. That's not the point. In fact, I think we pick up on it here in this passage. If you look back at the text, look at verse 50. See, the issue is the heart. It's always the heart. It always comes back to the inner attitude. Look at verse 50. God's mercy extends to those who fear Him. So the point is the heart attitude of humility and reverence before God. God, You are awesome. God, I fear and reverence You. That's lowliness. That's smallness in the eyes of God. And then if you look at verse 51, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. So the issue is our hearts. It's not ultimately our bank statement or what 
job we have. It's, it's our heart condition. See, here's the reality, folks. Everybody is a needy sinner before God. Everybody is broken before God. Nobody can stand before God and be acceptable in His sight. We are all lost, every single one of us. Even the, the most educated, smartest, beautiful, successful person is just as in need of God as the, as the drug addict. We're all in need of God's grace. The difference is that when things are going good in my life externally, I'm, I tend to, be, tend to be anesthetized to my spiritual need. So that if I am doing well financially, or I do have a nice house, or I am, you know, whatever, then I, I just tend to think, well, I must be okay. Even though I have this glaring spiritual hole in my life, I can't see it, I can't feel it. But when things go bad in my life, and I'm broken, I'm out of work, I'm broke... I'm, uh, my, you know, my spouse walked out of me, my boyfriend just dumped me, my, you know, I'm in the hospital. When I'm in those low spots like that is when I tend to be suddenly open to my spiritual need. And then I start saying, you know, maybe, maybe my problem here isn't the fact that my boyfriend just left. Maybe I have a deeper problem. And I think God uses those moments of brokenness. No, no, no. God brings those moments of brokenness to get through to us. Because we're so thick-headed. And in those moments of brokenness, hear the voice of God saying, I'm bringing you to this valley so that you might have a deeper and deeper experience of me. Because it's in our brokenness and emptiness that we can suddenly get in touch with our spiritual condition and say, God, I, I need you. The problem is ultimately pride in our hearts. The problem is pride in my heart. And so, how do we view ourselves? We talk about how we view the world. How do I view myself? Uh, do I see myself as okay. I'm good in God's eyes. I'm good enough. Especially when I think of my standing before God. And pride says, I'm fine. Humility says, God, I need you. Pride says, I got it together. Humility says, I don't have it together. And God is drawn toward the one who's humble and repentant before him. And, and you know, pride doesn't have to be something big. You don't have to be a you know, CEO of a multi-million dollar corporation to be proud. You can just be proud like I'm a, I'm a decent person. You know, I was talking to a lady this uh, spring, and uh, we started having a spiritual conversation, and she just started, sh it was kind of interesting, she just sort of opened up and started sharing some of her views of spirituality, and, and she gave the typical line that you'll always hear, she said, you know, spirituality to me, she says, is trying to be good to my family and being a nice person. You hear that all the time. So in other words, she has a definition of spirituality that she wrote, and that of course matches her self-perception, so it's very convenient, isn't it? It's, you know, we, we take this test, and we pass the test, but you know the fact is we wrote the test. <laughs> I wrote all the questions, and then I give the test to myself, and I fill it out. I'm like, well, I, I got them all right. I must be okay. You're like, yeah. <laughs> well, there's another test, and it comes from God. Try that one, you know, and, and that's when we, we tend to, to crash and burn. And, and so we sort of rate ourselves by our own metric, by the world's metric, and say, I'm a good person. I'm a decent person. I'm a nice person. And it's all pride. It's all a way of saying to God, I don't need you, I'm fine. Which is all Adam and Eve said in the Garden of Eden, I don't need you, I got the apple, I'm cool. You know, it's, just, it's the same thing, just it never changes. That, that's the nature of sin. And so we, we come before God proud. And I don't care what kind of pride it is. I don't care if it's the secular version of pride, where a person says, got a good house, good car, second home, nice boat, therefore I'm okay. Or if it's the... You know, new age version of pride, I you know, use incense and meditate and eat organic food, therefore I'm okay. 
Or if it's the evangelical Christian version of pride. I, I read my Bible on a regular basis and go to church. Therefore, I'm okay. No, 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 no. We have to come to God and say, I, I don't have it. I have to come to God with my, the spiritual pockets of my soul turned into, inside out saying, God, nothing. Help me. God's salvation comes not to those who have their acts together, but those who say, God, I don't have my act together, and you know what? I really can't get it together no matter how hard I try in order to be acceptable enough for you. And it's when you come to God in that position of total emptiness and brokenness that God's mercy and grace just comes in and and saves us. And as I said, I think God even brings us to those places of brokenness so so that He can save us. We don't get there on our own. We don't set on a quest to be empty. No, God's grace brings us there so that from beginning to end, it's God who does the saving work. And He brings us low. I got an email from uh, someone this week and there's this one sentence and I just wanted to share with you that was like one of those sentences that just like jumped out at me and it was like poof. And the sentence said, I can do nothing without Jesus and I am nothing without Jesus. And I'll tell you, I read that sentence I was like, oh, that's it. I can do nothing without Jesus and I am nothing without Jesus. And to find God's salvation and God's kingdom, I have to come to that place of just utter humility. I can do nothing without Jesus. I am nothing without Jesus. And when I'm there, that's when God can roll up his sleeves and get to work. And that's when it starts to happen. Do I look at myself as if I'm fine? Or do I say, like Mary, I am the Lord's servant. Do with me what you want. Do I say, like Elizabeth, my Lord, and point to the baby in the womb? Do I come to the foot of the cross, to the base of it, and kneel before it and grab onto that cross with my hands and look up and see this this suffering, mutilated, horrible-looking guy pinned to the cross, rejected, spat upon, and bleeding with two other crooks on either side of him? And do I look up at that guy and say, Save me, Jesus. Save me. That is the gateway into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are nothing without you. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for saving my soul despite all my efforts to resist you. Thank you for crashing through all the barriers I've set up. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would continue your saving work in our midst. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who's holding on to some self-concocted religious definition of salvation, Lord, that they would abandon it, that they would just come kneel before the cross and cry out for salvation to you, Jesus. And I pray for those of us who do know you, Lord. I, I ask, continue to invert and upset and overthrow the worldliness within us. Lord, help me to care for the lowly. Help me, Lord, to be drawn toward the broken, to children, to the sick, to the the people who are more time-consuming and irritating and tiresome. Lord, help me to be drawn toward those people and to minister to them. God, it is not in my programming at all to do that. And so I need you to continue to shape my heart. And I pray the same thing for everyone here. Lord, let us be a church where your kingdom is evidenced. Lord, you've blessed this church with many blessings, with education, with prosperity, with 
um, good uh, strength and vitality. But I pray, Lord, that we might use those resources and invest them in the direction that your kingdom is heading. And so, Lord, use us, be with us. We are your servants. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.